It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. Hey now, now that there seems to be finally some good news on the pandemic front with the ramping up of the vaccines, I read the other day that there are now 2 million doses a day actually being put into people's arms. We still have a long way to go. How much responsibility do public figures have to encourage more of the public to get these shots when they are available? So all the former presidents, except for Donald Trump, are going to participate in a public service campaign that's going to show them getting vaccinated. That's probably a good thing, presidents of both parties. And in the sports world, LeBron James is coming under a lot of pressure to urge people to get it as well. It's fascinating. Um, The king, LeBron James, uh, was quoted the other day as saying, that's a conversation that my family and I will have. Pretty much keep that to a private thing. Things like that, where you decide to do something, that's a conversation between you and your family and not for everybody. I'll keep it that way. Well, I have to respect that. Not everybody who's famous, whether because they can put a ball in a hole or the world of politics or they're good at making movies or whatever, you know, has to become part of a political campaign or a public service campaign. But I certainly, given the fact that there seems to be greater reluctance, given the history of African-Americans and vaccines in this country, for minority communities, it's harder to reach them, harder to convince more of them to get these vaccines, which, of course, protects not just them, but everybody. Um, you know, somebody like a blonde could have a big influence. Uh, meanwhile, have you heard about this? Russia is retaliating against Twitter by slowing down the speed when you go on the website if you are in Russia. And this is a blatant retaliation uh, for Twitter's refusal to... F- out of Moscow's demand to, re- to remove certain banned content. And Putin is also threatening uh, to completely block Twitter in his country unless uh, Jack Dorsey's company does what he wants. Now, this has to do with uh, Russian authorities accusing Twitter and others of failing to delete posts it said, it claimed, were illegally urging children to take part in anti-Kremlin protests. Now, I don't know if that's true or not. Maybe some people who are, you know, pro-democracy activists in Moscow were using Twitter to, um, to push this. It doesn't seem a, a crazy thing if it's targeted at children for Moscow to claim. I'm sure there's another side to it. Twitter so far has no comment. But it does show you, you know, in this country we had Donald Trump urging uh, an end to the legal immunity for Twitter, Facebook, Google, other, these other tech giants where they can't be sued for just acting as, a, you know, allowing people to post whatever the hell they want. Uh, in Moscow, they don't, uh, they don't worry about these niceties. Putin doesn't have to ask the legislature to do this. He just says, oh, we'll shut it down. If you don't like it, we'll shut it down. I'll keep an eye on that for you. Um, one of my pet peeves is that when movie stars want to gin up a little publicity, they said, you know what? I'm just thinking of running for political office. There are so many examples where uh, they do this to get a little PR, and then, of course, they end up not running for office. Now, are there exceptions? Yes. There was an actor named Ronald Reagan who once ran for governor of California, and then he ran for president. Uh, And there was a longtime actor named Arnold Schwarzenegger who followed in Reagan's footsteps by running and winning the California governorship. That was in a recall election. Um, some years ago, and now Gavin Newsom may be facing a recall election if uh, the proponents can gather enough signatures. Um, so the latest example of this is Matthew McConaughey, uh, who apparently has been uh, teasing the notion that he might uh, run for governor of Texas. So on a podcast the other day, 
Uh, McConaughey was asked about this. Uh, would you consider running for governor? And he said, it's a true consideration. He, he's keeping the door ajar. Now, he just happens to be promoting a new um, memoir called Green Lights. Isn't that interesting? And he's a Texas native, so it's not that it gets crazy. Like, I, you know, if he wants to run, fine. But just, you know, they always like, well, you know, I might just do it. You know who else might just run for Senate, according to uh, his own Twitter account? Geraldo Rivera. Geraldo Rivera now lives in Cleveland uh, after many decades in New York. And, you know, Rob Portman, the incumbent Republican senator there, just recently announced he's not going to run for re-election uh, in 22. I guess I got to get used to saying that that's next year. One of five Republican senators, I think, who is uh, deciding not to run for re-election, which obviously makes the playing field more attractive for the Democrats. But Geraldo is saying, he told us to Mediaite, that if he does get into the race, he'll run as a Republican. Uh, he is pondering running, is the exact quote from Geraldo. Now, uh, before you get out your checkbook and decide if you want to give money to Geraldo Rivera or not, um, who, by the way, I guess would face a certain stomach block. I mean, he was if he runs as a Republican, he's a longtime friend of Donald Trump. He was a big supporter of Donald Trump, even though he disagreed with uh, many Trump policies, especially on immigration. But then after January 6th, you know, Trump kind of cut him off because he started to criticize uh, Trump's role uh, in the events leading up to the riot, and he said in an interview with me on Media Buzz that it would have been better if Trump had graciously conceded the election, that he had a, a real problems, that he told Trump this, and that, that Trump, uh, Geraldo, told me, uh, stop taking his calls. Anyway, he's done this before. Back in 2013, Geraldo said, I guess at the time he was living in New Jersey, that he might run for a, a vacancy in the Senate there, but he did not do that. So we'll see whether Geraldo gets in the race. I mean, I hope he does, just because it'd be fun to cover. All right. Story number one, the big, massive, gargantuan coronavirus relief bill getting final passage yesterday. No surprise there. The House um, approving the bill for the second time, but this time the House had approved the bill as adopted by the Senate, which meant no $15 minimum wage and certain other changes. So that's final approval. It goes to President Biden. Biden's given the big primetime speech tonight, 8 Eastern, and then he will sign the bill tomorrow. So a couple of thoughts here. One is I'm watching uh, cable yesterday and there's some kind of ceremony where Chuck Schumer and Nancy Pelosi are at a desk and they're doing something that they're signing papers to enable this to go to the White House. You never see that. When a, when a big bill is passed by Congress, the next time you see uh, anybody with a pen and paper, it's the President of the United States with the legislative leaders there. You know, it just goes to show you, I mean, I don't know why the White House didn't frown on this, how Joe Biden is often content to just take a back seat in a way that not just Donald Trump, but, you know, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton never would have. You know, he lets Chuck and Nancy get the first bite of the apple, so to speak, in terms of the... Uh, having a television ceremony, and then he'll have his ceremony on Friday. But it kind of reminds me of the way that, you know, Biden gives a lot of speeches about COVID-19, but you don't see him at any of these briefings. You see Fauci. You don't see him talking to reporters daily. You've seen Jan Psaki. Now, this is by design. This is the way Biden wants to run his presidency. But in this particular case, uh, 
I'm surprised the White House didn't uh, say, hey, somebody's going to be on TV. It's going to be the president of the United States, who basically has staked his presidency on this $1.9 trillion bill. Now, what's striking here to me is that the Democrats are now coming out, and now that it's passed, and we're openly saying this is an attack on poverty. Now, there's a lot of parts of this bill, as you know. The $1,400 stimulus checks for individuals, which will bring it up to 2000 which, by the way, is what Donald Trump said he wanted at the end of his presidency. Uh, the jobless benefits, the aid to schools, the aids to cities and states, um, a whole bunch of other stuff, including a lot of liberal agenda items that aren't really directly c- uh, connected to the helping the people who, through no fault of their own, have come on hard times, lost their jobs, are struggling, uh, or in danger of losing their houses or being evicted from their apartments because of the deadly coronavirus. So the New York Times has this very glowing piece about how this is, in fact, could be the greatest assault on poverty, especially child poverty, because poorer families will get uh, tax credits of up to $3,000 per child, actually up to $3,600 per child, depending on the age of the child. So if you've got two, three kids, that's a really big boost. And although that is only for this year, there was already talk in Democratic circles that maybe we'll come back and try to make this permanent. So um, what the Times is saying here is that Biden is following progressives in his party to the left, that's clear, accepting the encouragement of his inner circle to use Democratic power to make sweeping rather than incremental change. And he has personally been moved by the equities and pain and suffering that the pandemic has inflicted on the poorest Americans. Now, I'm all in favor of getting rid of child poverty. You probably are. Who could be against that? But you got to get down to the details. You know, we are spending $2 trillion is is half of, of the entire government budget for the year. So we're spending money we don't have. We're going deeper and deeper into debt. Deficit is exploding. I know nobody cares about that anymore, except if you're the opposition party when the other party holds the White House. So there is a debate to be had here. And what's striking to me is that Joe Biden, throughout his career, you know, Amtrak Joe, the guy from Scranton, He's always been the guy who cared most, who spoke most, who saw himself as a champion for the middle class. In fact, even as vice president and now as president, any piece of legislation, any policy change, he asks, how does this affect, you know, the factory worker, the construction worker, the nurses, the teachers, the cops, the firemen? And that's been his political persona. And there's a lot to help the middle class in this bill, too. But but it does seem that Biden has now embraced the role of almost like a modern-day LBJ, uh, because not since the Great Society have we, have we had a piece of legislation that was going to spend so much money to try to, yes, help people of all income levels, but particularly to try to help the poor. Uh, this could be something historic. But also, helping the poor until recently has not been fashionable. I mean, the LBJ didn't, the Great Society, he didn't win the war on poverty. And there was a backlash, and many middle-class people felt, fairly or unfairly, that their tax dollars, that they needed help, that they were trying to keep their heads above water, you know, be able to send their kids to college and all that, and that their tax dollars were being used to help poor people 
who, you know, some people would say weren't doing enough to help themselves. And that you saw that backlash when Ronald Reagan ran for president uh, more than a decade later and talked about welfare queens and, you know, the tax on all of these uh, poverty programs for poor people that never seemed to get at the underlying intractable problems of why people are poor because it's more than an economic problem, it's a social problem and all of that. And you saw this with Bill Clinton when he reformed welfare in partnership with Newt Gingrich and the Republicans. And you know who voted for that? Joe Biden. So Biden's always been the middle class champion, but you can just see how favorable the coverage is to this bill in large measure because it's seen as helping the poor. That's now sort of made a comeback as the Democratic Party has moved left. When Republicans, who usually concentrate on cutting taxes and paring back uh, government programs, do their thing, as with the Trump tax cut in 2017, the coverage is a lot more skeptical. Well, this is going to help the rich. Well, it's too much tilted to the wealthy. Well, it doesn't really help the middle class very much. Well, it doesn't help the poor at all, because if you're not poor, because if you're poor and you don't have much income, you don't pay income taxes if you're below a certain threshold. So this New York Times story is basically praising the Biden bill for helping the poor. And then there's an accompanying story. that says, oh, by the way, it helps the middle class too. Um, Stimulus payment, tax benefits, expanding Obamacare, and all of that. Um, and one analysis says for people making fifty-one to ninety-one thousand a year, pretty well defined as middle class, they will see their after-tax income rise by five point five percent as a result of all these changes. But it may not last. Now, here, story number two is a very different approach in a Washington Post piece. So it starts with the same premise. At first, Democrats were describing this as a once-in-a-century response to an economic and health emergency, and it is that. It's the whole Rahm Emanuel, never let a crisis go to waste. You know, COVID has ravaged our economy, and this, some version of this bill was needed. Remember, it was under the Trump administration that the first COVID bill, which was about a trillion dollars, was passed by Congress. But now, Republicans are complaining according to the Post, and you know this just if you turn on the TV every day, but I didn't really see much of this in the Times, the, the counter-argument. And of course, as we know, there was not a single Republican vote for this bill in either the House or the Senate, which undermines Biden's claims of being bipartisan. But nevertheless, if you look at the polls, there's as many as 30, 35, even higher percent of Republicans, rank and file, people who support this bill. It's a popular bill. That's a pretty high number in these polarized times. Anyway, uh, Republicans are seizing on the Democrats' new boasts about the legislation. Here's a congressman from South Carolina, Tom Rice, saying it's a selfish attempt to saddle our next generation with debt filled with, quote, progressive payouts that we the people did not order. Well, you the people had an election. Joe Biden was elected. Uh, Democrats were elected to run the House and Senate. The Senate extremely narrowly, 50-50. And that's how it works. Elections have consequences. Uh, this is interesting. The legislation, according to uh, one professor, supposed to drive down the nation's poverty rate from 12.3% to 8.3%, meaning it will lift about 12 million people out of poverty, uh, according to a Columbia University professor. That's pretty remarkable. But a lot of these benefits expire unless they're made permanent. So then by the following year, poverty would come back, child poverty would come back, and that will be undoubtedly an argument that Democrats will make. But there is another side to this debate, and I think it is important for the media to recognize this. There's been a lot of cheerleading about this bill. I'm glad it passed. Did it need to be $1.9 trillion? Did it need to have $86 billion to bail out, you know, 
failing union pension plans. Um, this was the train that was leaving the station. It was a, it's a Christmas tree with a lot of um, costly ornaments, to mix my metaphors. If I was writing this, I would go back and hit the lead and try not to mix the metaphors. But when you talk, you, you know, you're just hearing it uh, unfiltered, shall we say. Uh, but I do think there's a responsibility on the part of the press to say this isn't, there's another side to this. It could overheat the economy. Uh, it's great if it helps child poverty, but at what cost? What, at what point do the spiraling debt and deficit, which is nobody really cares about anymore except you know, when you're in the opposition, as I said, at, at what point does that hurt the country? I mean, everybody, you know, giving out government money is really popular. Who doesn't like that, especially if you're getting it? But are we passing on the bill to our kids? Are we passing on the bill to the next generation? Don't go anywhere. More BuzzMeter coming your way in just a moment. Story number three, I love this headline. I love this piece by political co-founder John Harris, uh, who is now a columnist. And he likes to write columns that, about things that other people don't want to say out loud. And so the headline here is, Why are so many people in politics a-holes? That's what the headline says, A-holes. He uses the whole word of the piece. And I'll just read a little bit of it because uh, I have wondered this myself. The premise is, look, you go into politics, it's a people-pleasing business. You're trying to get consensus. You're trying to get people to like you. If they like you, they will vote for you. So why is it that so many people in the business of being likable are actually so unlikable, says Harris? Um, to quote him, not merely unlikable in the awkward, eye-rolling, prefer-not-to-spend-much-time-with-that-clod sense, unlikable in the toxic, misanthropic, something-must-be-wrong-with-him sense. In other words, in the Andrew Cuomo sense. And now you see the newspaper for the column. Or at least the way many subordinates and fellow politicians experience Cuomo on many occasions. Well, so what he says, and you've known if you follow this story, and there have been a lot of stories about how Cuomo not only has managed his governorship in New York, but how he ran his office when he was the HUD secretary. Uh, Cuomo now obviously battling six allegations of sexual harassment from former aides, female employees. Widespread reports of an abusive office culture that go beyond sex. He hasn't bothered, Harris says, much over the years, cultivating friends and allies who are ready to stand with him even when times are tough. In fact, People from both parties are calling for his resignation. An even greater number are enjoying his precipitous fall from the lionized status he enjoyed a year ago. So, you would think self-interest alone would dictate that politicians and operatives try to emulate, for example, a guy who just died of late, Vernon Jordan. Everybody loved this guy. He was genuinely, he was nice to people even when he didn't have to be. But a lot of people are like Cuomo. And ultimately, what goes around comes around. Because if you're abusive, if you are difficult to deal with, if you are a bull in a china shop, it may help you get legislation passed. It may help you politically. Um, but when, you, when your time comes, when you're under fire, when you're under attack, when you do dumb things and you need allies, it, it turns out you have very few allies when you've kicked a lot of people, even in your own party. So Harris's sort of armchair psychology stab at this is that uh, professions that demand public performance attract ambitious, creative, and often needy people, that's true, who feel under intense psychic pressure and often take it out on people when the spotlight is not on. Uh, there are even examples, he says, of this phenomenon affecting people in the news media. Uh, 
Yeah, if you think a-holes are limited to politics, uh, you haven't been around the TV business. Um, but the cult, he also says the cult of badass trash talking that has come to politics um, is, you know, it's a way to build up your image. So you're waiting and waiting and waiting and reading this, at least I was, to get to Donald Trump. So finally, this political piece says, you might say Donald Trump, who expressed contempt toward anyone who challenged him, proved the case that likability doesn't matter. Yet many who've spent time around privately around Trump say he was shaped by the hospitality industry, right? This is a guy who built condos and casinos and hotels and actually seems to work at being charming when necessary. So he says, you know, Trump is kind of an outlier here. Hillary's a good example. This how many times have you read or heard she's so charming and funny and gossipy and in private, but in public, not that likable. Or she's a phony and all of that. Um, I just think, you know, it actually Trump is another example of this because how many people who work for Donald Trump who were in the inner circle, and I could go through the list, John Bolton, uh, John Kelly, Anthony Scaramucci, and on and on and on, uh, turned on him, even Steve Bannon for a time, turned on him once they were no longer working for him. That is a, a reflection of how you treat people, uh, how you treat Jeff Sessions or Rex Tillerson and all of that. Anyway, bottom line is there are a lot of a-holes in politics. There are also good people. I don't want that to be overshadowed because what they find is that those who are vindictive and petty and mean while they're on the way up, they're kicking people on the way up, uh, when their turn comes and they are struggling for survival, uh, the people who got kicked in the teeth, got yelled at, got screamed at, got treated abusively, not very likely to show up in your corner. All right, number four. Moving right along here on the podcast, I, I talked yesterday and I've uh, been covering uh, the growing problems at the border, which even the Biden administration is acknowledging, migrant families with kids now being detained, greater numbers, something like 3,000 or 3,500 of them. And this is, of course, what Donald Trump, whose policies were very different and who did, in fact, in his administration, separate children from their parents, which turned out to be a colossal humanitarian crisis as well as a political blunder. Um, well, here's the analysis from National Review, just to kind of give you the conservative take. Um, starts out by saying that Joe Biden has this legislation, you know, comprehensive immigration reform. I've been hearing about comprehensive immigration reform at least since the Bush administration. George W. Bush couldn't get it passed. Barack Obama couldn't get it passed. Donald Trump couldn't get it passed, although he did unilateral things like trying to build a wall. Anyway, it doesn't look very likely that Joe Biden's going to get it passed either because people who tried to help the Bush administration, uh, for example, Marco Rubio, he was a member of the Gang of Eight that in 2013 pushed immigration reform. Well, he's totally off of that train. He says the Biden bill's a non-starter. Lindsey Graham was another member of the uh, Gang of Eight back when he was more moderate during the Obama administration, and he opposes the Biden bill as well. So that's going nowhere. And now the administration, because the more migrant families are coming from Central America, has to reopen these facilities. It's running out of capacity. It keeps these kids too long under the law. This has prompted new outcries about kids in cages, though the administration says the conditions are somewhat better, but they've got COVID to deal with. Um, and um, the National View story quotes some of the mainstream media. For example, the LA Times editorial board said the migrants are being emboldened by the end of the Trump era. The National View quotes New York Times as saying Biden's approach to broadly reopen the nation's borders to vulnerable children 
with what he hopes will be a welcoming contrast to Trump's erection of barriers, is already at risk from the grim realities of migration patterns. So in other words, you can't escape the reality that you're trying to be a humanitarian, you're trying to let people apply for asylum or flee persecution or flee grinding poverty. But if you do that, our country can be overwhelmed by illegal immigration. We don't have any place to put these people. And unless you change the law, and changing the law would require a grand compromise that no president in this polarized era seems able to get, which is tougher border security uh, and yet more a more humane approach for those who are already here, including allowing the, it used to be 11, mil illegal, 11 million illegal immigrants, I don't know what the number is, but many, many millions of illegal immigrants who've been living in this country and paying taxes and sending their kids to school, allowing them some kind of path, including paying penalties, um, to become American citizens, which of course is extremely unpopular on the right. So the National Review concludes by saying Biden owns what's happening now, and that bodes poorly for his chances of passing his desired reforms. And that's what happens when you become president. You, you know, maybe not in the first few weeks, but you own every problem. The economy tanks in the future, Biden owns it. Uh, immigration is a mess, Biden owns it. Uh, climate change, at some point, Biden owns it. You can go down through the list. There, you can continue to say, I inherited a mess. I mean, Donald Trump did that for four years with Barack Obama. Barack Obama did it. For, for at least the first four years with George W. Bush and the financial collapse of 2008. That's practical politics. But at a certain point, the public doesn't buy us. Okay, you've been in office a year. You've been in office two years. What are you going to do about these problems? And now let's get to story number five. Farhad Manju, uh, columnist for the New York Times, a kind of a liberal former tech columnist who is based in San Francisco Bay Area, has written a piece saying, you know what, we shouldn't fly so much. We shouldn't be getting on an airplane so much. And he, he starts out with himself like saying, look, I used to get on planes all the time. I'd fly across the country just to have lunch with somebody or to appear at a conference or to interview somebody uh, for a profile. Turned out he wasn't such a good profile subject, so I didn't do the story. I'm jetting around the whole world. And then comes the pandemic. And I and everybody else are having to Zoom, right? We're having Zoom and video. And, you know, because of COVID, people aren't getting on airplanes. And he says, look, I know I'm going to be mocked for this. Check out the New York Times columnist whining about all the fabulous trips he's had to endure. As he talked about all the nice places he went. And he said, look, face-to-face -face interactions, being there in person, is what used to justify the $1.4 trillion spent around the world on business travel in 2019, we're not talking about here about people taking vacations, but business people, salesmen and advocates and public speakers getting on airplanes to go somewhere and do business. In 2020, I hadn't actually seen these figures. Business travel was slashed in half uh, as people, you know, resorted to computer screens because of the dangers of COVID. You couldn't have large gatherings anyway and all of that. So Farhad says, I look back on the pro profligacy of my pre-pandemic air travel with embarrassment. I think about my lost productivity and personal time, my boss's money, and the pollution spewing from my plane. This is really what this is about. As it jetted to that very important event in Key West. Okay, I don't really think about my boss's money still. Mexico City, Austin, D.C. How many of those trips would have been unnecessary if only I had Zoomed? My estimate is somewhere between most and all. Aviation, he says, is a modern miracle. It's also expensive, annoying, and environmentally costly. Now that video conferencing has been shown to be an acceptable way to get work done, 
There's no reason to quit it just because the virus will eventually be gone. We can all be more and e uh, more judicious, and even if Zoom isn't perfect, it works. And he actually interviews some sort of road warriors, you know, people who travel, people who are sort of professional salesmen. And they say, look, I'm kind of, you know, on the one hand, I hated flying, you know, cross-country trip, stuck in the middle seat, takes two days to get there and back, unhealthy eating, poor sleep, the drinking, yes, because you have to drink when you're on the road, right? Um, but they say, you know, I could see doing a lot less of this. And, you know, from a purely profit point of view, I could see businesses saying, well, you know, didn't work so badly when uh, you didn't get to go to, you know, when a lot of times, let's face it, people tend more likely to get on airplanes when they're going to Puerto Rico or Key West or Aspen or L.A., uh, you know, places where it's warm, places where it's nice, not to mention around the world. And Cancun, I hear that's pretty nice, just ask Ted Cruz. All right, so uh, Manju comes down by saying, you know, look, video calls are not as intimate as face-to-face -face meetings, but they're not that much worse. It's cheaper. You're not stuck in a middle seat for five hours. And then he talks about all the carbon dioxide emissions from flying around these planes. So I don't know. Are, are we going back to the way things used to be once uh, the world gets vaccinated and COVID hopefully is reduced to, you know, something very minor and not this crippling pandemic? Probably. I mean, I think a lot of more people will work from home as businesses realize you can do that. So that creates a question about office space in major cities and downtown. I think more people will want to get on planes, in part because it can be fun to get out of town, get out of the office and meet people. And ultimately, you know, business is done person to person. You can't completely do it staring at a screen. But there'll be less of it because businesses won't want to pay for it. And people will say, you know what, instead of taking 10 trips this year, I'll take five. And the others, I'll do Zoom. So I think he may be onto something. And it is true that, you know, all this flying around doesn't help the environment. So, of course, anytime you, you have winners and losers when there are economic changes. So the airlines will be hurt by this. Although they've been helped by the, uh, uh, the coronavirus law that just passed when Biden signs it tomorrow. Uh, American Airlines had furloughed, had sent furlough notices to 13,000 workers. They just made an announcement, forget about it, tear it up. We're not laying you off. Amtrak is rehiring a lot of people, so that's good in the short term. Uh, I don't know, what do you think? You like flying? You like uh, business travel? It can be interesting. Well, what about the conventions? You know, 15,000 people going to go to the conventions uh, in 2024, the political conventions? Or is it just as good as a TV show and we don't all need to be there because the nominee, it's all scripted in advance and we already know who the nominees, uh, you know, that the nominees are going to be coronated as the presidential and vice presidential candidates for president. All right. Uh, on the other hand, I haven't gone on a plane in a year and I'm not dying to, but, you know, once in a while it might be nice just to get out of town, stop. Uh, taking walks is great, but... At a certain point, you just want to go somewhere else. All right. Stay safe, everybody. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll subscribe. See you tomorrow with more buzzing. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, Fox News contributor and editor of the Transom.com daily newsletter. And I'm inviting you to join a conversation every week. It's the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com.